Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and board view podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Andrew Powell. A reminder again that these episodes are meant for medical education purposes only, not to diagnose things on anybody's eyes. We review high-yield topics to help better prepare you for the clinics, boards, or OCAPS. What are we doing this week, Andrew? This week, we are talking about Axenfeld Rieger. Last week, we talked about the ICE syndromes, and Axenfeld Rieger bears some similarities to it as far as, you know, problems at the front anterior segment of the eye. So because they're rather similar, we'll chat a bit more about them today. There's also a lot of different diversions we're going to take with regard to Axenfeld Rieger, because Ben and I were just chatting with each other off air earlier. Axenfeld itself isn't too complicated especially if you kind of have the baseline of what's similar with the ice syndromes. But there's a lot of other details that are testable that kind of relate to a lot of other problems. And it's so easy to get mixed up between it and all the other stuff. Yeah, so one of the main reasons we care about if someone has axonville Riegers is because it's associated with a glaucoma. About half patients with axonville Riegers will develop glaucoma by middle or even late childhood. How is it inherited, Ben? So it's autosomal dominant, which is annoying because it'd been nice if it was autosomal recessive because AR would have matched it with AR, but you can't remember that. So it's autosomal dominant. And that is in distinction to the ICE syndromes, which again, those are all sporadic, right? Right, right. But this is the one that you can pass on down. Yeah, with what gene? Tell us. Oh, yeah. So this is going to be that first sidebar. Axophilin Rieger, as one of the anterior segment dysgenesis, has a lot to do with the PIT-X2 gene and the FOXC1 gene. I feel like you can never be too sure with these better-known genetic names. In this case, PIT-X2 and FOXC1 are pretty commonly accepted, so if you're kind of quibbling, do I really have to remember this? You probably do. I don't know. I have like a bit of a mnemonic just to remember what PIT-X and Fox. I think of fox pits as something like, you know, it's not really a fox hole, but like a fox pit sounds like something you'd see in a combat situation. And in a combat situation, you might be in a field with axes <laughs> thrown about in a, in a battlefield situation. So that, that's the like, that's like the mental image I pick up. Let's do a sidebar here now about other genetic factoids, okay? So sidebar stars. Okay, so yeah. Lots of other stuff with other anterior segment dysgenesis and a lot of glaucoma genetics relate to this too. So PIDX2 and FOXY1, it's not just Axenfeld. Um, they can also contribute to Peter's anomaly also, which eventually we'll do another episode on. That's the trouble with trying to associate these mutations in genetics with one individual thing. So, you know, your mnemonic earlier, Ben, about um, trench pits with axes makes sense for Axenfeld. And I guess you can imagine a soldier named Peter running through it and being unfortunate to be in that situation. Uh, PAX6 gene. What does that usually get associated with, Ben? With aniridia. Yep. Um, I have a mnemonic for PAC6 if you want it. Yeah. Again, you can cut this out. So I my mic's Papa Pax because there's there's uh, four things from where I was reading that are associated with, uh, with PAC6. So that's Peters. Apparently can be associated with it. Aniridia. And then posterior embryotoxin in isolation can apparently be associated with PAC6. And the last A I had was Axenfeld-Riegers actually. 
I think uh, the more you look into Axenfeld Rieger, the more they have like minimal associations with a bunch of the other homeobox genes and stuff like that. So I think the main testable ones are for sure PIDX2 and FOXY1. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah, I just for PAC6. Basically, it's anterior segment dysgenesis. And then also congenital cataracts, which you couldn't fit in PAPA. So <laughs> like the, basically, your anterior segment is messed up if your PAC6 is messed up. Yeah. But in general, the ones that they're most known for are PAC6 with aniridia, and then PIDX2 and FOXY1 with the episode today, Axenfeld Rieger, and to some extent, Peters. What about CYP1B1, Ben? What does that associate with? So that one's congenital glaucoma. And that one does have a pretty good mnemonic, right? Yeah. CYPY cups, CYPB1. So CYP, CYP1B. Yeah. Is CYPY cups. And then there's uh, GLC1A, which is associated with a tiger myoc protein. And they're associated with a juvenile open-angle glaucoma and some familial uh, cases of adult open-angle, which is too bad because there's a GLC1E also, and that's associated with OPTN or optineurin. The disease it associates with is normal tension glaucoma, so it's called. Now, I think if we just told you tiger myoc versus optineurin, you'd all probably remember which one goes to which. But my concern is if an unfair question says instead of tiger myoc, GLC1A, or instead of optineurin says GLC1E, eh, it's just sort of like, come on, man. Okay, that's the genetic sidebar. Let's do clinical presentation then. Okay, so axenfeld riegers basically is a problem with the formation of your anterior segment. So the, one of the most prominent signs of axenfeld riegers is posterior embryotoxin. And like we talked about in last episode with I syndrome, a posterior embryotoxin is when you have a prominent and anteriorly displaced Schwalbe's line. Schwalbe's line. Again, Ben, what is Schwalbe's line? <laughs> that is where the corneal endothelium stops. Yeah, and it's just, it's stopped too early, you can imagine, in Axenfeld-Rieger. So it's further anterior or further towards, sometimes you can even actually see it without gonioscopy. Sometimes just this weird little ring on the periphery of your limbus. Yeah, I feel like that's when you would, like, a lot of times when you see it, you like, it's first noted because you're like, huh, where's this weird ring on mm-hmm. the... Uh, you know, like without gonio, just looking at someone's eye. Yeah. This is like a little, like a tidbit, a juicy tidbit. Anterior embryotoxin has nothing to do with posterior embryotoxin. Anterior embryotoxin is just Arcus senilis. Oh, so gosh. just plain old Arcus. Yeah. It's like, so don't get confused. It's so anterior that it's on the other side of the cornea. <laughs> right, right. They're completely like not the same thing at all. And posterior embryotoxin can happen in normal people. So just because you see posterior embryotoxin doesn't mean they have Axenfeld Riegers. What's something else that? Axenfeld patients have? Um, one of the things that makes Axenfeld kind of seem similar to the eye syndromes are these iris adhesions that you can get. In this case, these can look again like big swaths of PAS, but it kind of, it doesn't have to be. These adhesions uh, that the iris has to Schwalbe's line can range from like being really thin and thready to being giant, big, broad bands, but it's like a abnormal connection adhesion from the iris to Schwalbe's line. Now, you can also have other problems with the iris, too. 
a lot of the stuff we talked about last time, same stuff here, especially with the essential iris atrophy variant of uh, the ice syndromes. We talked a lot about the iris being atrophied, having a dragged over pupil called otherwise known as corectopia, just random hole formations in the iris and ectropia and uva. All that stuff can present in Axenfeld-Rieger also. So in summary, this is why it can be confused with things like ice syndromes, where to review the problem in ice syndromes is the endothelium is growing downwards onto the iris, into the trabecular meshwork, etc. Here, you can almost think of it like instead of the endothelium growing down, it's more like all the anterior segment structures are being pulled up. So that's why the Schwalbe's line is pulled anteriorly. You can get these adhesions that are stuck to Schwalbe's line anteriorly. And the iris is almost like, you know, you it gets pulled on, so you get corectopia. They can just get, because of the pulling, can have holes in it or atrophy within it. So it can look similar, but it's almost like the force of the pathophysiology is in the opposite direction. Yeah, I kind of agree with that insofar as, like, it's an easy way to remember it, but... Yeah, just conceptually. But uh, I want to be a little careful about it because in the ice syndromes, it's a literal contraction that's happening, just like you said, of that endothelium behaving abnormally. But in Axenfeld-Rieger, I don't know that everything's really being pulled or pushed anywhere so much as it's just that these, I guess we'll talk about it in a bit, these embryologic derivations just didn't end up where they should. Like all these neural crest cells just developed weirdly. So all these things are misplaced, sure, but I don't know if it's because they necessarily got pulled or pushed around or if they just migrated inappropriately. Right, there's no actual... Yeah, there's no like there's no like membrane that's pulling on them, but that's right. just kind of what it sort of looks like. Yeah. Yeah, conceptually. Now, uh, one thing about this, just to comment, the iris, they, it can also be completely hypoplastic, too, actually. And that can be so severe that this can itself look like aniridia. And that also is worse because aniridia, which we haven't had an episode on yet, but we will, aniridia itself is also kind of on a spectrum. You can have someone with, like, you know, they'll have an iris. It's obviously there. It's just... It looks like they're super dilated, and that's how they are all the time. And that still counts as aniridia. So hard sometimes to yeah, hard sometimes to tell all these things apart. And the the, the last thing I, I just want to say is you don't have to have all three of these things: posterior toxin, iris adhesions, or other iris problems to say you have axonfold Riegers. You can have some combination of the three of them. Absolutely correct, and. Um, the next stuff that we're going to go into is maybe the most distinctive about Axenfeld-Rieger, and it's non-ocular, honestly. So don't turn off just because I said it's non-ocular. These are the things that are going to be able to make you really know for sure that what you're dealing with is probably Axenfeld instead of something like an ice syndrome. And these are all the systemic problems that uh, what one of my attendings has told me before, because again, this is a inherited dis- disease, he said, you know, people with Axenfeld, you'll see them and you'll kind of imagine that they all, quote unquote, come from the same family or that they're all related to each other. They can be hypertelluric or they can have telecanthus, which makes me worry a bit if you've ever seen a picture of me. Um, but No comment. What's your PD, by the oh, way? Shut up, Ben. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But uh, they also characteristically have maxillary hypoplasia. It's like the opposite of having a uh, strong cheekbones, I guess, or something. 
and then sometimes they have broad and flat nasal bridges. But in general, you can just summarize this as distinct facial cranial features. We'll say, we'll say it that way. And if you have them open their mouth, you'll actually you could note some dental abnormalities too, with smaller teeth or lack of teeth or complete lack of teeth, microdontia, oligodontia, hypodontia. I'll let you uh, keep on migrating inferiorly. And continu- <laughs> yeah, continuing. Head to yeah, toe, go ahead. <laughs> continuing down the body. Their uh, umbilicus characteristically has extra redundant skin. So if you ever mm-hmm. see someone with a posterior embryotoxin, you can ask them. Maybe one of the few times you can do this in an ophthalmology clinic to examine their belly and then take a look at their umbilicus. And then even further below that, they can have hypospadias if they're a guy, which is, their, is it their pole uh, being on the top? I actually like had to think about it. Is that? I, I don't think it's the top. I think in this case, hypo relates to this, the yeah superior or no, it's on the bottom. location. Yeah, it's on the bottom. Right, so... It's a little like instead of a garden hose, it's a faucet. Yeah, they have. That's a very wow. I wish I knew that in med school. Keep going, Ben. <laughs> and then, I mean, continuing kind of down the line, they can have anal stenosis. More stuff that you know, it's like more um, hormonal or further inside the body that you wouldn't necessarily see. Uh, there can be endocrinologic problems. So a lot of this has to do with growth patterns and pituitary abnormalities. Right. That's as much as we'll get into it now. And there can also be cardiac abnormalities, particularly of the valves. This is, I think, honestly, like these last two things are actually the reason why it's important to be able to recognize axial regers and not just treat someone as if they have opening of glaucoma and like, you know, miss the embryo, posterior embryotoxin or miss like the iris defects because those are the things that can yeah. really cause harm to a person, like, you know, because the patient should get an echo and an endocrine workup. Like, that's the whole point, Absolutely I feel, right. besides treating the glaucoma. Yeah. At the very beginning of the episode, when I kind of, like, hesitated a bit as far as what I was going to call this, Axenfeld-Rieger syndrome, anomaly, whatever, that was uh, partly because I was thinking about what to say now, which is the nomenclature of this disease or syndrome or whatever, uh, because it used to be separated. You could have Axenfeld anomaly just by itself, or you could have Rieger anomaly, and the distinction was, you know, now that you know all the weird like pathophys things that constitute how this clinically presents, what Axenfeld anomaly on its own designated was just having a posterior embryotoxin with, along with the presence of multiple iris strands. And then when people talked about having Rieger anomaly, they were actually including all of Axenfeld anomaly plus iris hypoplasia and correctopia. Uh, so this is kind of, it compounds on itself in this way. So Axenfeld anomaly is the kind of quote-unquote basic version, which is just posterior embryotoxin, multiple iris strands. Rieger anomaly is a step up. It's Rieger anomaly is that stuff with Axenfeld plus iris hypoplasia and correctopia. And then even beyond that, the next level up is Rieger syndrome, which is all of the stuff we said earlier plus the systemic problems. So technically, you could have just posterior embryotoxin, and you don't really want to say necessarily Rieger at all, just Axenfeld. Hopefully, this never comes up on a test question, because nowadays, it's all just a spectrum under the umbrella term Axenfeld-Rieger syndrome. And the whole distinction between the two names and 
anomaly versus syndrome, that's more of a historical thing. Right. But just in case. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or if it's confusing, you're reading something and they refer to things as different things. Yeah. Okay. Now, at yeah. this point, maybe we should go back Agreed. to the embryo side. Yeah. Why? So, you know, we talk about a seemingly completely random collection of signs and symptoms. Why does this yeah, happen? Right. What the heck? Why does this thing happen? Why does these all happen to the same person? Yeah. In this case, it all ties back to basic embryology and in particular of the different embryologic origins this one is all about neural crest cells and where they wound up and or where they should have wound up so uh yeah i am gonna punt to you ben well tell me more about what you know about neural crest cells <laughs> i'm so sorry no no, no you're, we're good okay so the neural crest cells make up a number of different cells in the eye we're going to focus in this episode on the anterior segment cells that it makes because that's what's relevant to axonville Rieger syndrome. They grow in three distinct waves, and this is something that's often how it's quizzed on is the order in which the cells in a neural, of the neural crest form in the anterior segment. And just as a side tidbit, this tends to start around month two of gestation. So the first wave is the corneal endothelium. So that's the first wave of uh, neural crest cells that are formed. So then the second wave of cells that are made are parts of the iris, not all of them, like not the muscles and such, but the um, parts of the iris, such as the stroma. And then the last wave are the corneal keratocytes, or i.e. the stroma of the cornea um, is the third wave of, of cells. And it doesn't continue to make the rest of the cornea, like the, the surf, uh, epithelial cells is made from surface ectoderm and such. So you have to remember, it's not just finishes the cornea, it's just a stroma. But uh, yeah, there's more stuff that the neural crest does, right? Not just in the eye. <laughs> it's crazy to me. What else could cells have to do besides make the eye? So the <laughs> neural crest cells, if you remember from like med school embryology, also makes their facial, dental, and skull structures, like calvarial structures as well, um, which is why they... As Angie was saying before, they have these characteristic facial features. So we kind of already mentioned why one reason why axonfold Riegers is important to follow. Again, this is one of those things where if you don't identify it, then the patient can actually have systemic harm in the way of cardiac valvular abnormalities or endocrinologic problems, you know, especially if they're a child. Uh, Andrew, what about for the eye itself? What do like Ben said at the beginning, we didn't really talk about it so much, but uh, it can present with high intraocular pressure. Mostly what we just talked about were the structural problems of the anterior segment parts. But you can imagine if those aren't where they should be, then the drainage of like aqueous is all dysregulated. So they usually come in with high eye pressure, and you can just treat that medically. But remember that in this disease, unlike the ice syndromes, which present in Ben's age, 20 to 40 or so, these are typically, these very often can be pediatric presentations. So that has to factor into your decision about what medications to start. Certainly, uh, which eye drop category do you not want to give a kid, Ben? It's alpha agonist. Alpha agonist. You don't give if they're under two. Surgically, you know, we talked about how the ice syndromes back in the ep last week's episode, we talked about how the surgical treatment for ice is decently successful with a few caveats. In the Axenfeld-Rieger spectrum, these uh, don't work quite as well, unfortunately. And further, because we're talking about pediatric cases, 
for high eye pressure. You'll also include goniotomy and trabeculotomy into the mix too. Now, just as a refresher about what those are, goniotomy and trabeculotomy are basically trying to widen or open up the canal of Schlem a little bit more, either by unroofing the trabecular meshwork or by uh, just widening it somehow. The real difference is in the approach. So goniotomy, you have to be able to do that ab interno or go into the anterior chamber and then kind of unroof it, which many people will do for non-pediatric cases these days. It's getting big in MIG surgery. But to successfully pull off a goniotomy, you need to be able to see what you're doing. So a clear cornea is absolutely required or a clear-ish cornea. And if you don't have a good view, say if there's another problem of the cornea, like there often is in Peter's anomaly, and we'll talk about that later, but Peter's anomaly is essentially defined by this clouding of the cornea, then you need to go ab external from the outside. And that, uh, that we call a trabeculotomy. So the difference between a goniotomy and a trabeculotomy is basically ab, ab interno or ab externo approaches to the trabecular meshwork and schlem and canal of schlem. Wow. Even these don't really work that well for uh, Axenfeld-Rieger as they would for maybe, you know, someone without this sort of anterior segment dysgenesis. This is not just true of Axenfeld-Rieger. It's also true for other anterior segment dysgenesis like aniridia and the Sturge-Weber syndrome too. And again, you might, you know, how can you properly enhance the canal of Schlem or something like that when it might not be where it's supposed to be. Certainly the trabecular meshwork is also neural crest derived. So uh, hats off to pediatric glaucoma specialists out there. Last time we left, we ended the episode on ICE syndrome with just a quick rundown of four points that distinguish ICE from Axenfeld-Rieger. And I think it's worth repeating that uh, given that we're on the flip side of that comparison for today's episode. So, real quick, Ben, if you don't mind, I'll bounce them off for you. Which of the two is sporadic and which of the two is autosomal dominant? Ice is sporadic and axial Rieger's is annoyingly autosomal dominant. Great. For Schwalbe's line, is Schwalbe's line anteriorly displaced or posteriorly displaced in ice syndrome? Um, well, the endothelium goes past where Schwalbe's line is supposed to be. So posteriorly, right. so, sorry, posteriorly, that's the answer. <laughs> Posterior. Good. Yeah. And then that means in Axenfeld-Rieger, it's anteriorly displaced, which is confusingly called a posterior embryotoxin. Mm-hmm. Um, which one of them is always unilateral only? Ice is unilateral. Yeah. And Axenfeld-Rieger is bilateral, which I don't think we actually mentioned in this 20 minutes yet. So uh, sorry. It's definitely bilateral. <laughs> Systemic problems was bilateral. Yeah. Right. Great. Yes. And uh, that you just mentioned rounds out the other one because Axenfeld-Rieger syndrome spectrum has systemic abnormalities. Do the ICE syndromes? No. 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 Yeah, they don't. <laughs> okay. No. Okay. Okay. So we there's like a lot. I mean, this feels kind of like a random collection of problems in Axenfeld Riegers. So one mnemonic to help keep everything together is chump. That people with Axenfeld Riegers are chumps, which is I don't I don't mean it. Like I don't have anything against people with Axenfeld Riegers, but it's a mnemonic, so I'm sorry. So the C is for cardiac. So you have to remember that they have cardiac problems. Again, get an echo on these patients. The H is for uh, hypospadias. The U is for umbilicus. 
The M is both for maxillary hypoplasia and microdontia. So to remember that they have those two problems, that, that their face and skull structures are abnormal. And then the P is for pituitary abnormalities. So you can remember chump if that helps you remember the wide array of things that can happen to people with axial Riegers. And that's all we got. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at is 4 ears of the number four. And the website's updated, I think. Uh, I'll update it right now. Uh, at eyes4ears.com with the number four. We should announce the winner of our survey raffle. Yeah. we have a win- Thank you again to everyone who participated in our survey to help investigate things that we do well with the podcast and things we can improve on. Yeah, thanks very much. The winner of our raffle, and he's already been uh, gifted the $100 or Amazon gift card, but... Ended up just doing cold, hard Venmo cash. Uh, Michael Simmons, a second-year resident this year at UT Southwestern, the lucky recipient and one of our many participants, that all of whom we are very grateful for helping us out, finding out how all, everybody's been using this resource and whether it's been of any perceived use to you. So thanks again. And Andrew is compiling those results. And if you go to Arvo 2020, you can check out the results of the survey. If you'd otherwise like to support the podcast, then leaving a rating review on whatever podcast app you use is very helpful for us. And I think that's all we have for this week. Yeah, good luck, everybody. I know um, test season is around the corner. So uh, we will keep trying to keep putting stuff out for you till the very end and beyond. See you next week. Bye. Bye.